0: Welcome to Q-Talks, a podcast series by q the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This recording is from a live fireside chat that was held on the 28th of July with Steve Blank, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and creator of the Lean Customer Development Method. Thanks everyone for joining. This is the fourth live webinar um, as part of Q Talks by QTEC, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Edward. And I'm Shreya. And we'll be your host this evening or morning for you, Steve. We are very happy to have Steve Blank today with us. And the format of this event is slightly different with what we've had in the past. This will be a relaxed fireside chat where you could just pose your questions at any time and we'll try to pick them up as we go along.
1: Great. So just before we start, we wanted to mention the groups that are involved in delivering this event for you. So um, this AMA or Fireside Chat is presented to you by the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. Um, q is one of the largest entrepreneurship societies at the University of Cambridge. And you can see our activities at qtech.io. Um, and We'd also like to say a big thank you to the team who've been working hard behind the scenes to make this event happen. Um, and you can feel free to reach out to any of us that you can see on the slide there um, on LinkedIn. Q Talks by QTech is a leading how-to podcast series for tech founders and aspiring innovators. We've had some incredible guests so far including founders, investors, and experts. Um, And this webinar is the fourth live event as part of QTalks. So please do check out the content that we've got. We've got loads of podcasts out right now. Um, So you can find them at the link that's on the screen, or you can also scan the QR code. And from there, you'll also find the other activities that QTech is involved in.
0: Today, we are talking to Steve Blank, one of the godfathers of Silicon Valley, Steve is an eight-time civic entrepreneur and creator of the customer development and lead startup movement. He teaches entrepreneurship at a lot of universities such as Stanford, Berkeley, and Columbia. Steve is also the author of four books, The Four Steps to the Epiphany, Not All Those Who Wonder Are Lost, The Startup Owner's Manual, and Holding a Cat by the Tail. And again, you can post your questions on the chat box as we go along. So Steve, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We are very, very excited to talk to you about your background, your story, the customer development model and innovation in startups versus big companies. So just as an introduction, um, in your book, The Four Steps to the Epiphany, you cited Joseph Campbell's work on the hero with a thousand faces. And the basic idea there is, is that you have observed through your extensive experience that just like any hero's mythology, startups, to some extent, go through a common recurring monomyth. And the aim of today's Fireside chat is, we hope we could get some insights as to what are some of the observations that you have with respect to those common story. But before we go on to the general storyline, we would like to spend some time talking about the specific story, which is your own heroic journey. Could you share with us um, you know, how did you end up being an entrepreneur?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure it's a hero's journey, but uh, it, it was it was one heck of a ride in, in Silicon Valley. Um, let's see, I, I spent uh, four years in the U.S. military, uh, in the Air Force during the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia. Um, and then I came back and uh, uh, discovered this place called uh, Silicon Valley in the 1970s it's, Kind of hard to remember, but back then I think dinosaurs uh, still roamed the earth uh, at the time. Um, and uh, the short version is, I did uh, eight startups in twenty-one years with uh, four IPOs, uh, four public offerings. Um, retired uh, when I was forty-five. Uh, I wanted to see my kids uh, grow up. And uh, and when you're an entrepreneur, you have very little time to think about big thoughts. You're typically focused uh, on your narrow company and, and maybe your industry. Uh, but then I had time to think about the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship and uh, realized we were doing things wrong, um, or at least I believe we were. And so I've spent, spent the next uh, 20 years now uh, as an educator, um, uh, first at the uh, University of California at Berkeley in the business school and now at uh, Stanford, uh, mostly in the engineering school. And I also teach at Columbia. And at uh, various times, I've taught uh, synthetic biology uh, uh, at Imperial and uh, started uh, uh, courses for the US government in innovation that are national programs. Um, So that's the the short version of my career, uh, uh, military, uh, entrepreneurship, and now as an educator.
1: Fantastic. There's so many broad experiences that you've talked about that we could talk about, I'm sure, plenty of them um, throughout this fireside chat. Um, Just some
2: of them might actually be interesting or relevant, most of them (laughs) not. Let's see if we can figure out the ones that are.
1: (laughs) So you mentioned um, that you were involved in eight startups. Could you maybe um, share for us a couple of pivotal moments that you experienced during those startups? Because I think we'll we'll go on to talk a bit more about um, startups versus um, larger corporations and some of the kind of lean method that you've developed, um, but yeah, we'd be really interested to know um, what are some of the maybe the milestones or the pivotal moments that you that you've experienced.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think there were a few. Um, you know, as a as a very young uh, entrepreneur, and I didn't even know that's what I was. My my first company was actually a um, it was a startup, but it was a kind of a halfway house between a my military career and, a, and, uh, and an entrepreneurship career. Um, while it was a startup, it was part of a much larger national effort. And I realized, uh, you know, for me to succeed there, I, I was going to need a PhD in maybe 20 years. And in the meantime, I was living in a house with, you know, a bunch of other uh, young folks. And, and some of those people were were doing things on their own. Um, I was working with these gigantic computers, and and back then, these things called microprocessors had just come out. and 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 while the stuff I was working on was just like really incredible, they ran in and said, "Hey, look, I can make the speaker go beep." And they went, "The speaker go beep." I'm working on these giant things. Then they and they said, "And I'm going to start a company around that." And I went, "What? You could start?" In in fact, I kind of laughed, but then I went, "Wait a minute." you're allowed to do that? You could, you could actually do something yourself? And I realized right then that while I was working on some incredible technology, you know, my friend was, was about to be master of his own fate. And that always kind of appealed to me is that if you were smart and you had an idea, you know, we were sitting in an area that basically allowed visionaries to not only start things, but actually to get money from other people to, to fund them. Um, and that was when the light bulb went off that said, well, that sounds like a lot more fun than where I am. And uh, so that was light bulb number one, is realizing that you can be master of your own fate. Um, maybe another pivotal moment was uh one of my first jobs was as a, which I would kind of go back to 20 years later, was as a training instructor teaching microprocessor design. And it turned out our group uh, had lost its manager. And, um, you know, I realized, well, if no one's running this thing, I'm, you know, heck, I could do this. And so I went into the head of sales and said, you know, and I was so nervous. I, I remember just being frightened to ask this, but I said, you know, I could run this group. And he literally looked at his watch and said, what took you so long? I thought it was going to be you. And, and I realized that was kind of lesson two, is that, um, you know, 80% of your career is about showing up and raising your hand. Um, you know, I worked hard, but I also, you know, kind of realized that um, I could do this and, and I was going to ask for it rather than just sitting around waiting for someone to kind of like tell me what to do. Um, and here's the one that kind of started the entire lean startup movement. And it was the most humiliating and embarrassing time of my career. It's maybe 10 or 10 years into my career. I was now a VP of marketing in another startup. And uh, it was a company essentially making a supercomputer, a fairly esoteric, uh, high speed uh, vector oriented architecture at the time, which was important. But at the moment, Very smart people sitting around the room um, in what we call the system planning meeting, trying to figure out what features were needed. And, And these were people who had built computers before. I mean, serious folks. And I'm the head of marketing, and I'm just impressed with myself. I can actually understand what the heck they're talking about. But like every good or, in this case, bad marketeer, I thought I hadn't heard the sound of my own voice for a while. So I piped up and said, I think we need, you know, feature X. And, and the CEO looked at me and like, he knew I was just making stuff up. Um, and and my, my friend, the VP of sales, like head. says, don't, don't, don't go here. <laughs> and, and I went, and so I just kept talking. Yeah, we ought to have X and Y, like every marketeer just made a laundry list of things I think we needed. And I had never worked directly for the CEO before and was about to encounter a, a, a real change in my life is he put his face next to mine like a drill sergeant in the, in the military and started screaming at me. I mean, literally screaming at me. You don't know an effing thing about this technology or what customers need. You're an embarrassment to the career of marketing. Um, get the heck out of my company. And I thought I had just been fired in front of some of the world's most impressive people. I felt this big, I thought I could walk out underneath the closed door. That's how, that's how small I felt. And as I was standing up to leave, thinking I'd been fired, he said, the CEO said, and take the VP of sales with you and don't come back until you know what customers actually want. And customer discovery and customer development and the lean startup movement started that day when I learned that in fact, you know, there, there are no facts inside the building and no one really wants to hear your opinion um, and so unless you're gonna be the customer, get the heck out of the building and when you come back in, you'll have facts. And so you could run a fact-based enterprise, not a faith-based company. So those are three things that I think um, I think were kind of important in my life. And uh, you know, some of them um, I, I kind of knew it instinctually, others required a, uh, a slap uh, on the side of the head to kind of uh, pay attention to. I, I hope that was a good start.
1: Yes, fantastic. It, I, it actually leads us very nicely on to talk about, you've mentioned the Lean Startup movement quite a few times now, and I just want to make sure that all of our participants are um, quite like on the same page. So maybe you can give us um, an overview of what the Lean Startup movement is, um, what are the elements that form it, and we can take the conversation from there.
2: Sure. The no, Lean Startup is... Uh you know, I I would just call it the, the obvious, um, but but I want to con- contrast it to. We did something quite different in the 20th century in building startups, and and so maybe compare and contrast. In, in the 20th century, um, we kind of believed that founders had a vision. You know, I I see the you know the future, um, not realizing, by the way, that 98% of founders who were visionaries are actually hallucinating. Um, but in any case, you would have a vision, you'd you know, turn that vision into a set of PowerPoint slides and write a 45 you know, page business plan with, a, um, with 15 pages of spreadsheets. And you would shop it around to an investor who would like the font or maybe like how you moved your hands or you, know, you were articulate and they gave you money. And basically you took that vision Um, You wrote it up uh, into an engineering functional spec, and engineers uh, got locked into a room, sometimes physically, mostly virtually. You fed them junk food and lots of caffeine, and, you know, they built the product in a serial fashion, meaning, you know, it's one step after another. You develop the product and then go through something called an alpha test, beta test, and then you would ship the product at a first customer ship date. And sometimes if you were building hardware, that would take years. And the only time you would actually get customer feedback, serious customer feedback, about whether anybody cared in sufficient numbers was the years later after you shipped the product. Um, And that was just an enormous waste of time and money because almost always you were wrong. That is, you had a vision, but you never really tested it other than the minute investors gave you money, you believed you were correct. And that development model was called the Waterfall Development Model. Um, and, and and as I said, we spent an enormous amount of time and money to only discover that what we might have had, you know, the right customers, but the wrong feature set, or we might have had, you know, the, you know, the right customers, and the match just wasn't there between products and features. And there was no process to change any of that. In fact, the only way we would find out is uh, we'd have a VP of sales go out and sell the product, and and of course when the product didn't sell, the first thing you would do is obviously fire the VP of sales because the product couldn't be wrong. The, the it was the founder's vision, and you got fired and you got funded. Um, so you would try another VP of sales, and if that didn't work, you'd fire the VP of marketing, and if that didn't work, you fire the CEO. Um, And each time you would actually change something about either the sales tactics or the marketing, finally you would change the product, but this was an expensive process. make a very long story short, when I retired I I had done uh, startups this way, eight of them, and I was sitting on public and private technology boards uh, at the time as well and realized we had this backwards. What we were confusing was that we were thinking that startups were smaller versions of large companies, that at their core, large companies, when they become large, execute a known business model. That is, they know who their customers are, they know what features customers want, they know competitors, they know pricing, they know whatever, and we were acting like a startup actually knew all that, when in fact, startups weren't executing a known business model, startups were actually searching for one that's a big idea. This distinction between search and execution had never been made before. Yet we had built a hundred years of business tools and methodologies for execution. As you got your MBA, you learned how to manage large companies. You learned how to do organizational design and how to manage engineering groups. But there really was no methodology or even theory about how startups were different and my first you know, sets of, of principles were, well, number one, for a startup, there are no facts in, inside the building, so get the heck outside. I kind of explained to you the, the painful way I learned that, but it turned out to be true. As, you know, as a founder, you immediately want to take your vision and start building, and it's almost always wrong. Um, so number one was, let's get outside the building and discover stuff. Um, and number two is, uh, so that was, that was my contribution to lean. That was the first part was customer development. And then number two, what happened is one of my students, Eric Reese, um, discovered that Steve in the 20th century, you built products serially with um, waterfall, but in the 21st century, we're now using agile engineering, which says you could build products, whether they're hardware or software, or almost any type of product incrementally and iteratively. That is, build a piece, test it, build a piece, test it, build a piece, et cetera. Um, and so customer development and agile engineering was just a match made in heaven. It said you could get outside and then while you're talking to those customers, show them something called the minimum viable product, which is a fancy word for here's a wireframe or prototype or price list or a test of a regulatory regime or, or gee, can we get reimbursed? It's not only the The product, it could be a test of any part of your business. And so agile engineering was part two of the Lean Startup, only one more part to go. And and the third part is well, when we're outside of the building testing these ideas and, and showing people MVPs, how do we know what it is we're testing? And someone named Alexander Osterwalder came up with something called the Business Model Canvas, which basically said, Look, there's only nine things that you really need to be thinking about. I mean, there's actually an infinity of things, but here are the nine key things. You know, who are your customers? What are you building for them? He called the value proposition. How are you gonna reach them? How are you gonna get, keep and grow them? Customer relationships. What distribution channel are you gonna use? What's your revenue strategy? What kind of um, activities do you need to be expert at? What kind of resources do you need to own? Uh, anything you could get by partnering with people, and what are your costs? Once we had that business model canvas, we could now map out all our hypotheses, which is a fancy word for all our guesses, about what is it that we think needs to happen to build a big building, build a big company. So the Lean Startup, the long answer to your short question, has three components business model design, customer development, and agile engineering. And it just says a startup is not a smaller version of a large company. And that a business plan, which is what we used to teach in universities, um, are things that investors uh, make you write that they don't really read. and that while we still should probably teach them in the university they should probably be taught in the english department because they're the best example of creative writing you'll ever do but are not actually useful until you've actually tested a ton of those hypotheses Um, because no business plan survives first contact with customers
0: the idea of testing hypotheses, going out to the customer resonates well with a lot of scientists probably here because I, i think that's how scientists have been you know, working work basically
2: for this is the scientific method. So, if you really think about what lean is, is you you have a hypothesis. You happen to use the canvas to frame it. Big ideas. You design an experiment. Right? You run the experiment. This time outside the building, not it, not on your lab or, or on your bench. Um, you get the data, and you want to derive some insights out of that data. And then you want to do just three things with that hypothesis. you either validate it, you're invalidated, or you modify it, and you do that loop. And what's really interesting is what you just pointed out is that this is a 500 year old method. It is the scientific method. Um, yet it's applied to, to innovation and entrepreneurship. Yeah,
0: this is very interesting. So I guess I have one follow-up question on your point about how we should go out and talk to the customer. Now, <coughs> I think this might be very tricky for some people. Could we do- help us enlighten, you know, what what does it mean to talk to the customer? Does it mean that we visit a customer and then sell
2: our product or there's a lot of things that you could do when you talk to the customer. Yeah. And and so uh, that's, that's why in the last 20 years, there's about, you know, a couple hundred books now on customer discovery and validation. Um, and, and basically the, this is the fine line between an entrepreneur uh, whose passion is in the product, the first thing you want to say is, see, here's my product, Yeah, you want to buy it? Uh, I'm talking to you, uh, Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm out there, I'm, I'm doing customer discovery. Actually, that's called sales. <laughs> so, so customer discovery first step is not sales. The first thing you want to do when you get outside the building, and this one's kind of interesting, is think, if you really think about it, well, the first thing you, I tell people to do is leave your slide presentation at home which freaks people out because if you're not comfortable talking to customers, which most scientists and engineers are not, and um, in, in fact, when I teach this for the for the our U- US National Science Foundation, our joke was the difference between an introvert and an extrovert uh, among them was whether they were staring at their shoes or, or my shoes. Um, but eventually we could teach everybody to make eye contact and, and learn how to do this. But the first thing that that um, is worth thinking about is anytime you're building something or coming up with a new idea, implicitly you believe you're solving someone's problem or need, or fulfilling a need. That is, you you sometimes even skip that step and go into, well, here's the product we're building. And I go, stop. What problem do you think you're solving? Or what need do you think you're fulfilling? And why don't we test that first? Big idea. Let's get out of the building and test whether other people share your view about how important, whether the problem or need even exists and how important is it and do they understand how important it is? You might understand it, they might not understand it. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll have those conversations and it literally is just interviewing people, saying, hey, you know, how do you, is this something that's important to your organization or to you, et cetera? And then people go, oh, now can I show them the product? And no, the next step is, so if this is a problem or need, you know, how do you solve it today? And it might be, well, it's not that important, so we don't solve it. Or it might be, well, we put together all these other piece parts to solve it or what. Or if you're lucky, oh, we're desperately searching for a solution. Then the third step is, you know, well, if you could solve it, not like showing them the product yet, but if you could solve it, if, if it was a single piece of software or if it was a new diagnostic or if, a, oh, that would be great. Or half the time you go, nah, that wouldn't work in our business. And then you go, oops, lucky I didn't show them the product. And then if you follow that flow out, eventually you get to say, well, what do you think about you know, this? Either a wireframe or an MVP or something else. And so it's not, will you buy my product? It's a series of customer discovery steps to make sure you understand the problem, the need, how they're solving it, whether they have budgets, what other pieces need to work with and around your product. And then finally, when you understand that, you could go to customer validation, which is, well, if I had that, would you buy it? Well, yeah. Okay. You know, give me the money now. I'll put it in an envelope and we'll hold it well, I really didn't mean I'd I'd actually buy it. And then you discover more things about the sales process. Does that make sense?
1: Um, Another question that I've got is when people talk about customer discovery, they talk about building customer personas. Um, What do you think is the role of using customer personas in that various uh, steps that you just talked about? And how how can people or founders like use them effectively.
2: Yeah, so you know, for personas, or some people call them archetypes. You know, on, on day one, you'll start with, well, who are our customers? And you know, we tend to like to put up, you know, fake pictures of 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 uh, hypothetical customers. You know, you know, here's Dan, and here's Shria, and here's someone else. And okay, uh, tell me, you know tell me something about them. And you start writing a story about who who do I think they are and why will they buy and where do they live and how many of them are there? And you put them in your engineering offices so people could see who they're building a the product for. That's nice, but as you get out of the building and start talking to Dan or Sharia, you find out oh, no, all my assumptions were kind of wrong. And they don't care about this. They care about this. Or, holy cow, you know, it's not Danish Rhea. There's someone else that, you know, that's equally important that we should have been paying attention to. And so personas are actually uh, what you're out discovering about and you're discovering all these things that are important to them. Does that make sense? I guess the other question that might be related to that, Steve, is that um,
0: a lot of people... I've been trying to classify their customers using this life technology life adoption cycle for example you try to find early market customers and then you, you know you try to find the mainstream market people that will eventually buy a product and people spend a lot of time talking about the existence of these huge chasms in between those two do you think this is a good way of looking at how
2: your customer segments are like or yeah you know um that, that was a uh some research popularized by Jeff Moore in the 20th century called Crossing the Chasm about um, you know, going from uh, just early evangelists to early adopters and that there's a kind of a gap between those early adopters and mainstream adoption. And, and that works, but it only works in one type of market. Um, you know, I've discovered, uh, and, and, and I'm sure this is on the list of, of uh, questions you're gonna ask, is, is that works in an existing market but doesn't work when you're creating something new and disruptive that no one's ever heard of before. I mean, this is the classic of, you know, if Henry Ford would have asked people what they wanted and they would have said a horse with six legs or, or Steve Jobs famously said, oh, I never talked to customers. You know, it just came out of my head as I was sitting in a Zen Lotus position with lightning bolts coming out of my head. Um, turned out none of that's true, but it does bring up the point is that customer development Uh, is different when you have an existing market. And by existing, what I mean is, you know, next iPhone. Well, that's an existing market or next smartphone. You and I and almost anybody could describe the characteristics of what an iPhone is or what a a smartphone is. And you could probably come up with some features you'd like next, cheaper, faster, more X or more Y. But if I would have asked you in about the year 2005, what a Portable phone should have been. You would have said more keys, or a bigger keyboard, or something else, or um, so. Or in the year 2000, it would have been like unbelievable to ask that thing. So, how do you do customer development discovery when there are no customers and there is no market and people don't even understand what you're talking about because you're a visionary rather than making a um, an enhancement or improvement in an existing market and. Uh, And the answer is what you're trying to achieve is different in an existing market you're trying to find and understand the basis of competition Um, the customers will tell you what's important to them and you could do a good job in discovery and trying to understand their problem and needs and go back to your engineering group and say "No, no no it's not about price it's about features or no it's not about features it's about size or or something else in a new market something that's disruptive your job is to figure out what's the day in the life of a customer today and what's it going to look like when your product and service comes out how's the world going to change how are people's behavior going to change what ancillary things that is is there anything adjacent that needs to happen change in regulation or other devices or gee we need to go to 5g to be completely deployed for our service to actually happen and, it w- and 5G will happen, but when will that happen? Um, and so there's a difference between an existing market where that, now back to your question, where that early adoption and gap happens, and it, it kind of does in some markets, um, but in a new market that the whole marketing sales, how you burn cash, etc., is very different. And if you're not clear about those two distinctions, you actually get confused about the type of customer discovery, about the type of capital, about the type of uh, uh, demand creation you need to be running, etc. Because remember, in an existing market, it exists. Your job is simply to take share from the incumbents. It's a big idea. Your job is to take business from the existing people. In a new market, if you try to do those same activities, it's a divide by zero problem. There is no market to take share from. Yet, yet, you hire the same marketing or salespeople or chief revenue officer or run the same Facebook or, or whatever ads. It's like throwing money in the street because you didn't understand. There, there was, you have to create the market before you could create the man. Does that make sense at all?
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And that reminds me of, you know, that example about how, you know, if Steve Jobs or maybe Ford were to ask people about what do they want they would probably say like things like better horses or better phones. But yeah. I, I would say the other side of that coin would be if Steve Jobs were to offer or you know, promote his iPhones to big companies, most people wouldn't dare to say that that product sucks in front of his face. I mean, nobody likes to say that someone else's baby is ugly. So you as, as a visionary, how do you read in between the lines? What sort of feedback should you take? Um,
2: and that, that sort of thing, I guess. Yeah. So the next step after customer discovery—remember, customer development is a multi-step process—is customer validation. Is okay. Uh, you said you love it. Um, you know, why don't you just pay me now as a pre-order? That is, you could pre-order it now. Um, so if I was Steve Jobs and wanted to test the next iPhone, put your money down and, and uh, reserve—you know—reserve the next iPhone. All of a sudden, you would discover—you know—how much of that demand was just—you know—noise and how much was real, and, and I have done this for products worth millions of dollars. I, you know and The sales process is obviously more complicated, but after multiple meetings and doing a lot of discovery, people said, oh, we're so excited, and I went, great. You know, I want a purchase order for a million dollars. People used to laugh, Steve, all you have is a bunch of slides and some great engineers. Well, listen, we've now spent the last three months talking to each other. And you told me that, you know, like you're really excited and you want to buy this when it ships. Why don't we write a purchase order that says, you know, we will deliver every feature we talked to, talked about. And if we don't deliver any of them, you don't owe us anything. But if we do, you owe us a million dollars. And you, and like, you know, I'd say 80% of the meetings that I thought I were having that were productive ended right there. Well, I was just kind of trying to see... But 20% went, huh, well, let me think about that. You need to meet my CFO because those, and oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, here are all the other people that need to be involved. But surprisingly, we had fully cancelable purchase orders for millions of dollars that said if we, and by the way, I could take those purchase orders back into my engineering team, paste them to the wall, which I did, that said finish the damn product (laughs) because here are the orders without having actually finished the product does that make sense that's customer validation is the next it's not sales it's a sales happens when you have a finished product and a price list and you know it's kind of a machine it's an execution machine this is still in in customer development but validation said okay i heard all these nice words from potential customers and they said they love me and come back when i have the product no no no. that usually means go away and get out of my office when my students said oh it was a great meeting they said come back when the product's delivered <laughs> i said well, you just got thrown out of the room you didn't it wasn't a good meeting it was a bad meeting you should ask for an order well we don't have a finished product that's exactly when you test customer interest does that help
1: yeah really interesting we've had um we're starting to get some questions in in the audience and a couple of them are very related to what you are just talking about. So um, I'll I'll kind of combine them and and see how we can take it from there. So Dan Fahini is asking about premium freemium models, sorry, and whether they work to capture new customers. Um, and Lydia Alavadova, um is asking about your point of view on free content or offering a service at a lower cost in order to gain feedback, and she was saying that she's afraid to give away too much value without charging for it. So what it, it's slightly different to what you just touched on, but, I, yeah, I was wondering what your, view, what your point of view is on that.
2: Yeah, so if you really think about um, the early stages of a, a startup, particularly somebody on, on, on the web or mobile, uh, you know, you're, you're struggling with customer acquisition. Is <clears throat> How do I get people? um either acquire to a website or download an app or start using the product or even giving me an email address or 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 getting engaged <clears throat> and a freemium model is one way to do that, except you know the trap is always worrying about conversion and testing potential conversion is you you might put too much in the freemium product that people are just fine using it um, Most freemium folks now have figured out that um you know, freemium is a great way to get, is what Eric Reese calls a vanity metrics, is look how many people are actually using my product, but zero revenue. Um, and uh, and most of them like have figured out painfully that no, we should have been charging from almost day one. Um, but it depends on, on what they're offering um, um, and how you're offering it. Um, so there's no right rule of thumb other than um, you know, for me, the the step after customer acquisition is is actually activation. You want them to either start paying or using or downloading or engaging with the product. Um, so the goal shouldn't be freemium, the goal should be revenue. Um, and if freemium is a way to do that, I would be running a series of experiments to figuring out what my conversion rate is, not just how many people do I get to download and, and use the product. Um, you know, uh, prayer is not a startup strategy, um, and, and freemium usually falls under the prayer category. Is <laughs> if I give it away, will it get better later? Um, it usually doesn't, um, unless you've run a ton of experiments on conversion.
0: So that's interesting. If, if maybe I can relate that comment of yours, Steve, to a part of his question, which is about taking feedback. So suppose if you run this freemium model, you run a set of experiments and you, you sort of get some feedback uh, as you go. To what extent or when, when, how much data should you collect before you're confident that this product works or
2: this doesn't work? Yeah, great, great question, Edward. And, and uh, though they've all been great, this one gets back to the heart of what Lean is about. So um, at least in my mind, Lean is not a giant focus group. It, the whole idea about getting out of the building for me and at least why I built the process, because I was building it for me as an entrepreneur, it's a big idea. The whole purpose of Lean is to inform the founder's vision. That's huge. It's not in contrast, let's get all the feature request, requests, put them in a spreadsheet and, and like prioritize based on the number of people who've asked for feature X or Y. You can run a startup that way, I guess. Um, but that's not why I wanted to get out of the building. I wanted to see if there was some signal in the noise. And I'll give you a good example. Um, you know, teaching a class at, uh, at Stanford, we ha- have students also test not only product market fit, that is that big connection between um, customers and, and what features they want, but other parts of the business model like pricing. And so the students were out there spending the week testing their pricing model for their product. And I happened to see, because we get to look into their notes uh, uh, during the week, um, what they were about to present. Um, And it was gonna be very interesting. They came up with a spreadsheet that said, we talked to 45 customers and it's clear that our app ought to be priced at $9.99, $9.99 US. I said, well, that's great. Um, Why don't you tell the class about the rest of the data? Oh, Professor Blank, that's that's what we got. We, no, I said, I've seen your spreadsheet. You had more data than that. Oh, there were three outliers. We just tossed them out. <laughs> well, why would you tell the class what you tossed out? Well, three people told us it should be enterprise software, and they pay tens of thousands of dollars for it. <laughs> I said, well, why did you toss that out? Well, 45 people said it ought to be $9.99. <laughs> and, and there right then was the whole point of like what they missed. It's not a giant focus group, this isn't a math problem. The signal was that there were three people who saw immense value in this thing, that they, and again, like most students who've never sold an enterprise before, an enterprise sale is scary and complicated and whatever, and obviously as a student you understand what an app is and 9 99 and yeah, I could understand that, but, you know, complicated direct sales to an enterprise, oh, that made their head explode. So they just ignored that. That's, that's the antithesis of, of what you're supposed to be doing. And, and so, so the, the point is, is you're, being a founder, is you're closer to an artist than any other profession. It's a big idea. This isn't a job. If you're going to be a founder, I don't mean a, an employee, but a founder of a startup, um, you see things other people don't. You hear things other people don't. You know, when Van Gogh was painting Starry Night, it was like a blank canvas. You came back the next day, and it was like spectacular. When When Michelangelo started on the Pieta, it was a 12-foot block of marble. But he saw, you know, like the world's most beautiful sculpture. And when asked how to do it, he said, I just removed this stone around me. You know, that's what a founder does. Um, it's the world's worst job, but it's the world's best calling. And there's a distinction between a job and a calling. And, and I just remind everybody who's, who's listening is, if you're not called to, to this, if you're doing this because it's cool, or, or gee, your friends are doing it, or it's the hot thing to do, um, you're going to be massively disappointed because unless you're driven by the passion of creation you know most most artists don't like make hit after hit it's mostly failure after failure and disappointment after disappointment but it's that vision and passion to create that gets you up off the floor and have you do it again and again um and so this getting out of the building process is just a way to be more efficient, but not a replacement for that passion of creation. You're listening and you're just trying to figure out, is this a dead end? Or do I follow this lead multiple flies down? Or gee, do I back up and go over here? Or, or gee, they want to have me do custom development. I'm not interested in that. Or gee, this is like feedback. Maybe I ought to do a pivot, which is a, Uh, substantive change to one or more parts of my business model.
1: That's fantastic and you've re-lighted the spark in many uh, many founders who might be tired. Um, So I just wanted to, um, I just want, we've had a lot of questions and I want to make sure that we've covered all of the topic areas or as much as we can. So we've had a few questions on risk analysis and management, which I think is quite a natural thing to talk about in this time that we're going through. So um, could, you, could you give us an idea of how startups and founders can prepare um, to mitigate some of the risks, um, in, like unexpected risks that you get and how in difficult times startups can still
2: thrive? Well, you know, I, uh, I think that's a great question. Um, and, and, um, and I just want to frame that for... If you're not comfortable operating in chaos and uncertainty, and, and uh, you can't make decisions quickly, um, and and you're not prepared, um, you know, to get punched in the face and get up off the floor, um, don't be a founder. Um, lots of other you no, know, you could be an early employee, you could be a co-founder, you could be, you know, but don't be a founder. Um, it took me four startups of you know working. Four people who did this until I finally thought I had enough skill and and background to do that, I'm just blown away that my students coming right out of school think they're immediately qualified to do this, and some of them are I mean you know the good news is that my work and Eric Reese's and Osterwalder's work and uh, hundreds of other people now gave us tools so you can do this um so um, I don't know um. I think that the the biggest thing is to just be prepared um, for uncertainty. I have found, and it's not a criteria, but it is amazing connection is that people who grew up in dysfunctional families or had to travel long distances socially, or you know, grew up in poor villages and and somewhere, and then made it to to Cambridge or some somewhere. Uh, are better prepared to be founders than people who grew up in happy normal households. Because when you, when your whole life was dealing with adversity and in fact operating through that chaos where everybody saw noise, you were able to see through that fog of war. Um, that, that is actually the world's best preparation for, for being a founding CEO. Um, and I found that true in my life. And, uh, you know, as I said, it's not a criteria, but it certainly helps you, uh, operate in that world of uncertainty.
1: Are there any other things that you would recommend aside from sort of, I guess, life circumstances um, that, that founders could kind of put in put in place?
2: Well, you know, the, the whole idea about the Lean Startup and customer development is to simply, you know, give you the framework and resources to stop avoiding, to, to avoid doing stupid things. I mean, if you really think about it, all Lean says is, here's a list of stupid things that we used to do in the 20th century. You probably don't want to do them anymore. Like, you know, let's raise a bunch of money and spend it all on advertising on day one. Cause we think we're right. Let's, you know, not hire, you know, an entire sales force on day one uh, because we think we're absolutely right. Let's not get the big fancy building cause all our friends have the big fancy building. Cause you know, we think we're going to be, that is, You can have the vision of, like, here's where the future is and here's where I'm going to go. But the interesting thing is we're now going to ask you to keep two things in your head. One is your vision and passion, and the other is that, like, maybe I ought to run a series of quick experiments just to validate, um, you know, whether I am a visionary or perhaps I am hallucinating. And that's really tough for for a passionate founder. Being able to keep those two things in your head, hey, we're moving, we're going in this direction, but running these experiments at the same time, that creates cognitive dissonance. I don't wanna, in fact, decrease any of the passion or any of the energy of a founder. What I'm trying to do is figure out how to decrease the, 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 the number of resources, people, money, time, etc., that you'll waste in not testing some of these ideas. Surprisingly now, now to answer, uh, you know, in the time of the pandemic, um, surprisingly, you could do more customer development um, via Zoom than you could in person. It turns out that it's pretty easy to get people on the phone now. They they might be sitting in their pajamas or you know only wearing a shirt and and sitting in their underwear. You'll never know, um, but. But, and number two is there are no gatekeepers around them, meaning there's no secretaries and admins and scheduling software. So you could get to people you could never have gotten to. And three, obviously your travel time has gone to zero. That's the speed of light. Um, And so surprisingly, you could probably 2x the number of people you could do customer discovery with inside your building. Second is in the pandemic, at least in the US, um, and probably in the UK and the EU as well, you know, existing businesses are going to change and change forever. Uh, travel and hospitality is gonna be different. The nature of work is gonna be different. So reconfiguring existing businesses require innovation and also creation of new opportunities are just spread out in front of us. No one knows what it's gonna look like after, but it, it will be different. The, the thing I'm reminding people is uh, if your business model the 1st of March and the 1st of September still look the same, you're probably going out of business um, or missing a huge opportunity, one of the two.
0: I think that comment was very timely, Steve. Um, I was just wondering, um, from a high-level overview, right, th- this pandemic and this whole saga that is still unrolling, do you think this will change the way we look at entrepreneurship? And w- will some of these recent happenings change the way you think about how customer development should be done.
2: And, and- well, I, that's a great question, Edward. I am now convinced that where we're before I said, you absolutely 100% needed to physically get out in front of people and see their pupils dilate. <laughs> that is, be able to see their facial reactions and and understand the context of where they work, et cetera. <clears throat> that's still important, but I've now learned, that I'd rather trade off uh, the speed of getting to more people for first level discovery and then post pandemic, uh, being able to get out and seeing some of them and seeing the context of how jobs get done and putting MVPs in front of them. Uh, But I am now going to say that um, at least half or more of discovery, the first level of discovery, not validation, not get the order, but first level of discovery could be done via video conferencing, um, whether it's Zoom or Microsoft Teams or something else equally well, it's different, but it's equally well for the first pass of discovery. That's a big learning for me. And I've now run multiple classes uh, this way of having uh, hundreds of students uh, run uh, run the lean process this way and have been surprised how productive it's been. Different, but productive.
1: Fantastic. Um... I am very sorry that we probably won't get to all of your questions, um, but there have been a few around investment and seed funding. Um, so it's taking it slightly away from the customer discovery angle, but for, for a lean startup or a startup that's trying to kind of employ lean methods, at what point do you think it's right for them to uh, to be seeking seed funding? And what exactly should they be looking for in, in going through this process?
2: Well, you know, how you're building your company now is probably different in the, at least in the U S about where you can hire people, where they're living, et cetera. It used to be in Silicon Valley. We were worried about how many people could fit into San Francisco. Um, you know, and, and could you find all that talent there? I think we've just run a giant global experiment that says, uh, you know, how productive are remote teams scattered across the world? And, uh, and talent no longer needs to be physically in the building. I think what we're going to find, by the way, is that, you know, physically going in maybe one or two days a week to just kind of have some social connectivity, uh, but we no longer need to show up for five days a week so we could sit and code in front of a screen and drive 45 minutes each way or be on a mass transit. Um, I think though the funding environment is different. I think the you know, some of the pre-seed and seed stuff has kind of dropped off uh, at least here and certainly some of the series A's because uh, people, venture people, still want to see people in their conference room and get some physical feel. But the longer uh, this goes on, I think, uh, you know, we're starting to see an uptick of people who are willing to write seed checks um, you know, virtually. I think that's just an amazing, uh, uh, amazing change. I think in the long term, what it's gonna mean is that people in areas who never could have gotten seed funding before from from VCs out of the Cambridge area or, or, or Silicon Valley or New York, um, we actually might actually globalize that nature of innovation and entrepreneurship. That is that funding might not be cluster dependent anymore. That's a big idea. Um, and if that comes out of this pandemic i think that'll be great for innovation entrepreneurship we've kind of forced the experiment that says you know does a startup cluster have to be in a physical location um and we might find out that no it doesn't
0: thanks steve um i'm afraid we only have time for one more question and i would probably like to refer back to where we came from you know we you started by saying that startups need a different way of looking at business models from how large companies have been doing it basically in the past so if we were Steve to try to close this feedback loop um are there anything from you know the way startups look at business that large companies could learn from maybe in terms of innovating
2: so, you know, large companies, have, uh, I wrote an article that ended up in the Harvard Business Review cover uh, called, called Why the Lean Startup Changes Everything. And that turned out to be kind of a, a, a watershed event that had large corporations looking to startup techniques. The sad part is that they ended up creating mostly innovation theater, not innovation. While startups aren't smaller versions of large companies, large companies aren't bigger versions of startups. Um, Companies build processes and procedures and OKRs and KPIs, that is ways to measure success um, for scale. Yet innovation requires very different processes and procedures. Um, and, and so what large companies are discovering is that while they're running incubators and accelerators, uh, those actually are turn out to be nice activities that shape culture but um, very rarely move the needle on revenue and profit. It doesn't mean they can't become innovative. It just just means we've gone through this first wave of copying startup techniques and discovering that by itself, that's not sufficient. Uh, What companies really need to end up doing is learn how to become ambidextrous organizations, which is a fancy word for, they need to learn how to chew gum and walk at the same time, meaning, be able to run innovation and execution processes simultaneously and that's very very hard um but but some of them are great at it
1: fantastic and thank you so much steve for giving up so much of your time to talk to us um i'm sure everybody very much appreciated your um comments on everybody's questions and again apologies if we didn't get to all of your questions we tried to provide a broad range there were so many interesting questions so thank you so much to, to everybody um, and thank you very much to Steve um, any any final comments
2: for everybody who um, you know is thinking about the, starting an entrepreneurial career I I could tell you it's the uh, it's the most exhausting terrible worst thing you could ever do And I wouldn't have done anything different in my life because at the end, it's also the most rewarding um, and uh, gives you the ability to actually, as Steve Jobs said, make a dent in the universe. and, uh, And I hope all of you do. Take care and thank you for the time.